Hi, and welcome to the third season of Public History in a Virtual Age, a podcast from the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies, or ITPS, at Iona University. I'm Nora Slonimsky, the director of the ITPS, and a professor in history at Iona, which is based just outside New York City in New Rochelle. This season, we're thrilled to be partnering with the New York Historical Society's Center for Women's History. We're recording live from the New York Historical Society, or the NYHS, right across the street from Central Park in Manhattan's Upper West Side neighborhood. More than 200 years old, the NYHS is a library and museum with collections, exhibits, films, and so many other programs and conversations that span over 400 years of history. The Center for Women's History is a bit more recent, but no less groundbreaking, to the history of history here at the NYHS. Opening in the spring of 2017, on the fourth floor, around a stunning display of vibrant and detailed Tiffany lamps, and of course the women who made them, the Center for Women's History is the first dedicated center in the United States within a major museum. Demonstrating that women's history is an essential, if often overlooked, part of American history, the center curates incredible exhibits, shares educational opportunities and resources, and hosts a vast range of events and research. This season is going to feature several of the people who make this programming possible, focusing closely on the themes of women and gender history and New York history. The first half of episodes will feature interviews with curators, educators, and scholars at the New York Historical Society to explore the many ways in which New York's first museum presents women's history and gender history to the public. Then, in the second half of the season, The conversation will turn to how public historians in and around New York address the history of women who are underrepresented in museum and archival collections with a focus on enslaved women, indigenous women, and immigrant women. As institutions based in New York, this season will also focus largely on histories of New York City and state as a whole. But the points raised are certainly relevant to people and organizations around the country, and thanks to this digital medium, perhaps even further than that. When we think about public history in a virtual age, the last few years have pushed us to consider and reconsider how history practitioners and institutions create and communicate historical work, from scholarship to exhibitions, with virtual and digital access in mind. How do we take historical media, designed for one format, and make it fit in another? How do we emphasize specific circumstances and places, like the history of New York and New York State? while also considering connections between different places and times. And do these connections come across differently in a virtual format? We've been working through these challenges and opportunities at the ITPS as well. And so I'm really looking forward to learning more from these experts, and I hope you are as well. The idea for this season came out of such conversations between myself and your brilliant co-hosts, Jean Gutierrez and Dr. Kellen Henneford. Jean in particular framed much of this season's focus and as a curatorial scholar in women's history at the NYHS, has especially sharp insights into these questions. Kellen is an established public scholar with a ton of podcast hosting experience. The former digital coordinator and archival liaison at the ITPS, Kellen is now doing historical consulting for gun regulation advocacy groups, where many of the themes of this season, particularly around historical communication, are key to her work. You can find out more about both Kellen and Jean and their work at the ITPS portal. Before I turn over to Jean and Kellen to get the season three going, I wanted to thank them for what's sure to be a very cool season. I also wanted to thank Dr. Valerie Paley of the NYHS, one of our first guests, for supporting this collaboration, Jessica Kowal for her tech guidance, Dr. Tricia Mulligan, the interim provost at Iona, and the Robert David Lyon Gardner Foundation for providing the resources to make it happen. And of course, thanks to you all for listening. Please let us know your thoughts on social media. We use the hashtag ITPSCWHpod. And with that, over to Jean and Kellen. Hello, I'm Jean Gutierrez, a curatorial scholar in women's history at the New York Historical Society. I'm here with Kellen Hannaford and with Valerie Paley, who has so many hats here at New York Historical. Uh, she is the founding director of the Center for Women's History, senior vice president, and also the Sue Ann Weinberg director of the Patricia D. Klingenstein Library. 
Valerie, we're so happy to have you here today, and we're really excited to be kicking off this series, uh, talking to you about your experiences. So we wanted to start just by asking about the Center for Women's History and how it came about. About seven or eight years ago, we at New York Historical uh, saw as the next frontier uh, for renovation our fourth floor, which at that point was the home of the Henry Luce Center um, for a material culture. And we had kind of an open storage space there. And it was kind of of a, of a piece. It was it was very voguish in the 90s to have this kind of open storage mm-hmm. so that, you know, museum goers could see like what was in collections, but not, but there was no interpretation behind mm-hmm. it. So we felt as though Real estate being uh, what it is, <laughs> precious <laughs> in uh, New York City, we needed to uh, do something that had a little bit more of an interpretive framework around the Loose Center, and that and that began an odyssey for how how do we take our objects, imbue them with a kind of meaning, mm. and we decided to place front and center a extraordinary collection of Tiffany lamps. Uh, these were in our collection, but had been in a weird back corner of the uh, loose center. And we decided to make a, a glittering architectural space that would just showcase these beautiful objects. But when we got into just the sort of the design of this space, we discovered that that we were almost doing a souped up version of what we were trying to replace, which is a lot of beautiful things with no interpretation. Ultimately, we alighted on the idea to foreground the uh, the story of the women who created these lamps and received no credit for it. Tiffany got all the credit. Clara Driscoll, who was sort of the uh, the foreman, forewoman of the uh, of the uh, the glass cutting group, who were all women in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, never got any credit for her work. And she did some of the most iconic lamps. And therein was the the sort of the seed Mm -hmm. of women's history. All of a sudden, something that had been these objects that had been just appreciated as, you know, connoisseurship uh, level, but not with any kind of historical, deeper historical framework, became all of a sudden this springboard for us to really look at women and women's history and their impact on not only uh, the collections and how we interpret them at New York Historical, but on you know, society and history writ large. And we were off to the races. Uh, we decided initially to do a film that would then contextualize these lamps. We applied for some grant funding from the Mellon Foundation and other um, uh, other sort of grant funders. Mm-hmm. And before we knew it, we realized that, that there was a, a real void in, in terms of, of uh, women's history in the public realm, in the museum setting, because before we even had our aspirations on paper, we were getting funded to do something. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, what became a very nimble way of interpreting an extraordinary collection became something much larger than just that alone. The film, of course, is uh, We Rise. And I was thinking, sort of looking back on the sort of genesis of the Center for Women's History, how much of it was tied to the calendar? And this all happened, um, you know, the first exhibition opened in 2017. The film We Rise was specifically tied to the year 1917 and focused on the centennial of the New York um, state women's suffrage laws. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Like, why 2017? Why did it take so long to get a center for women's history within the walls of a major museum? Well, I think it, it speaks to to a blind spot that we had culturally about this. There, there are certainly uh, centers in uh, university settings. Uh, certainly, there are even museums that are dedicated to women's uh, artistic production. But nothing that that takes in all of these elements, uh, be they educational, scholarly exhibitions, collections, 
artistic, historic, political, all of the different ways that women do impact history and society. After all, women make up 51% of the population. You would think that there would be a little bit more interpretation, (laughs) but there wasn't. And I think we were just very lucky uh, as public historians. We look for these hooks and centennial of women's uh, suffrage in New York State. It was just very lucky (laughs) that it was 2017. Uh, A century later also spoke to the fact that it took 100 years, at least in New York, to to really look at at this topic uh, and take a deep dive into how we can how women's history is is all of history. And uh, early on, our tagline was, uh, every month is women's history, every every month is women's history <laughs> month. In, uh, I don't know, 20 or so years ago, the uh, uh, United States decided to designate March as women's history month. And we thought, why March? Why not every month? And in fact, that's, that's what we do. Every month is women's history month here. As, as a matter of fact, not too long ago, we were so busy with so many different initiatives that I made the, the Freudian um, slip of saying every day is Women's History Month because <laughs> every day is is like a month's worth of, of content, ideas, you know, conversations about about how we can foreground uh, women's uh, extraordinary contributions to the past, present, and future. Which, of course, doesn't stop us from getting absolutely inundated with requests for tours and programs and virtual programs every March. And that's, of course, also when we do our MAX conference on women's history. Um, Would you like to say a little bit more about that conference? Yes. uh, Well, as I said, before we even really had a a plan on paper or, you know, a seriously before we even had determined what our, our larger goals would be. Um, we we got so much, uh, we gained so much traction from just the idea of, of placing a, uh, a center for women's history within the walls of a major museum in, in the United States, in New York in particular. A wonderful couple of philanthropists, Diane and Adam Max, uh, who were here in New York, wanted to somehow support this this initiative that we had. And uh, public programming is always extremely important to to what we do. We do at New York Historical is not just about exhibitions. It's not just about collecting. It's about a suite of activities, which include education and public programs as a way to to keep the dialogue alive and keep the conversations going in the public realm. And we didn't have any sort of public programming in women's history as yet. So uh, Diane and Adam Max said, why don't we do a conference? Why don't you, you know, we will fund a uh, conference, an endowed um, conference. So we are going into our eighth uh, year of this now um, in which we look at topics which might not necessarily be uh, thought of as women's history per se, but in fact, see how how women have impacted the American past. We began with a conference on labor and the garment industry uh, and immigration, uh, all of those things being combined into this topic. And how did women really uh, make make some sort of not only some sort of contribution, a major contribution in that area in the um, you know nineteen teens for sure during you know big uprisings in labor, but even before that. Um, uh, we we looked at sex in the Constitution. Uh, we looked at um, what else did we look at, Jean? Uh, the uh, 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 prohibition and how prohibition really was a, a women's a women's topic uh, yeah. for a number of reasons. Uh, that we, was another centennial. That's right. <laughs> and then we did the um, the suffrage one as well for that's 2020, right. and that was the one that we had to pivot and make all virtual. That's right. In a way, the, the MAX conference before the bricks and mortar of the uh, Center for Women's History, which includes, uh, you know, it's half of the, the fourth floor of New York Historical and includes uh, an educational space, in fact, where we're taping uh, right now in our teen tech commons. Uh, Girls Who Code was, a, was quite a, a hot button topic back, you know, five, eight years ago uh, when we were recreating this center. So in any event, we, you know, we've been extremely lucky that uh, the zeitgeist was with us, but so too are all of these different uh, 
anniversary centennials, we always find a way to to uh, you know create a hook between our content and uh, and what is out there in um, in the public space. Yeah, I just wanted to shout out last year's conference, which was the 50-year anniversary of um, the passage of Title IX. And you all brought Billie Jean King, actually, to speak to the audience here, which I missed and was very upset about, but I'm sure was absolutely fascinating. One of the really interesting things about doing history in a more sort of capacious way than what I do as like a 19th century historian is that some of the history makers you actually get to speak to And I was so excited to see that you were able to bring in a guest like Billie Jean King. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the ways that you all work to put these conferences together, the kind of work that happens behind the scenes that the audience just totally misses when they're being blown away by the the panels and such that you all put together. Yeah, the behind the scenes, you know, how the sausage is made (laughs) aspect is is sometimes hairy <laughs> and uh, nimble, to use a word that we use a lot. But just a word about Billie Jean King, too. Mm-hmm. And this was, uh, again, as I say, we were a little, we were with the zeitgeist. It just so happens that Billie Jean King does live near the New York Historical Society mm-hmm. or one of her, her apartment is nearby. And when she learned we were putting together a center, uh, she became extremely excited to be part of it and, in fact, at that point was looking for a place to donate her archive and her collections of ephemera and um, tennis costumes and such videos. And uh, this was very uh, fortunate for us that it, it, in a way, legitimized our uh, 20th and 21st century collecting in women's history and in women's history in particular. We could point to Billie Jean King's sort of buy-in of our of our program and say, "Hey, yeah, we're here to stay. This is not just some sort of flash in the pan. This is this is truly uh, an important aspect of what we do, not only at uh, within the center itself, but within the New York Historical Society." I'm happy to say that many of the programs, as well as exhibitions, which are not under the direct purview of the Center for Women's History team do have some aspect of women's history in it because we discovered that all of this is kind of hiding in plain sight. There is always a women's angle one can take. And, you know, there are sins of omission and commission uh, that we commit as historians and as public historians. But by and large, I think we've been able to find uh, really interesting through lines where we weren't necessarily or wouldn't necessarily have been looking for them in the past. But uh, back to the uh, the Max conference, I think a lot of the time is, you know, I think a, a kind of a leitmotif that's that's coming out of this conversation is we are we seize a moment and we see different aspects that are um, of uh, history that are happening, you know, between anniversaries and such, or just in in the world. Uh, another person that has been very uh, a wonderful supporter of ours is Irin Carmon, the journalist who also early on thought what we were doing was phenomenal, and she has done a lot of work with um, you know with exposing you know sexual harassment and and such. And she's a writer for New York Magazine and and others, a broadcast journalist. So a lot of the time we're we're lucky to have this this cadre of, of supporters, uh, intellectual as well as financial. And Erin has been wonderful in anchoring some of our programs, our, our programs and our panels uh, uh, in the MAX conference. She's often the one who bats cleanup and it's mm-hmm. like, all right, what's ahead? And, you know, how do we look, take these lessons from the past and look to the present and future? So we have something for the Erin slot <laughs> in, the, in the program, but in a larger sense, what we do is see these anniversaries. And then we also see some sort of content threads that are are happening in our um, exhibitions or otherwise. And then we try to package around around the um, that topic at hand. And sometimes we try to do things that are unexpected. It's always good to to do the unexpected and to to not lean in necessarily, wholeheartedly, to, oh, well, it happens to be a centennial year, we're going to do a centennial program. But often we do anyway. <laughs> but I think our uh, the CEO and president of the New York Historical Society, Louise Mirror, 
is very keen on the unexpected, giving uh, our audiences, uh, our visitors, a taste of what they already know, and then turns some like sort of commonly held beliefs about history a bit on their head um, so that we can allow our visitors some brain space to think about the content and to come away with some some new ways of thinking about the past. And I think that's a very good strategy for, for us. It's certainly worked in the Center for Women's History exhibitions. And it's certainly working, I think, even in a larger sense in what we do at New York Historical. I would say the exhibition we have up right now about the Salem witch trials is a great example of that. You know, people know about the Salem witch trials clearly, but then we give them a very different narrative. And it's led to some really innovative and unexpected public programs Mm -hmm. um, on queer fashion and witchcraft and so on and so forth. And that's something as well that's been quite successful virtually. Our other curatorial scholar in women's history, Karen Ben-Horan, who's done a lot of virtual talks on fashion, for example, um, has been incredibly successful in drawing in people who might not have come otherwise, you know, either because they're too far afield or because they don't think that this is something that would interest them. But now we've been able to show them that this is something that they can find out something new about. I love what you're saying about the Salem Witch Trials exhibition and the programming that's going along with it. So unfortunately, by the time this comes out, um, these will be in the past. But I did just want to flag that in the same week, you have a women's history salon that features scholars like Jennifer Morgan and Jessica Marie Johnson. And then you have, just a few days later, a women's history salon on queer fashion and witchcraft, like you said, Jean, that features not just those interesting topics, but also tarot reading. And so I think that you're reaching a wide array of people with these kind, this kind of programming. And also it feels, you know, both of those things feel very specifically targeted at me, which I love. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to come and check them out myself. I think something that we wanted to talk about more, given that this is about digital history, is the ways that you all are trying to make this, all of this stuff that you're doing, accessible not just to people who are physical patrons at the museum, but people online. So could you talk a little bit about your philosophy about digital history and the way that you try to implement that philosophy here? Certainly in New York City, there is so much competition (laughs) in in the cultural arena that one is always trying to find ways to draw in new audiences. But I think that we are in a moment when we can be uh, at the forefront of thinking more broadly. And and in many ways, the silver lining of the COVID era was uh, our ability to, to think more nimbly, to use that word again, about how even if we were shut down physically, how we, we still continue uh, our work, which we definitely did. I think that the the standards of uh, – initially, we were a little nervous through COVID uh, about the standards of our, of our Zoom programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what are the production values? They're awful. But then when the production values of, like, even the evening news were awful, we were like, <laughs> okay, fine. I guess we can do this too. And I think we got quite good at it. We have a wonderful AV staff and tech staff at New York Historical and became um, quite adept at drawing in new audiences by broadcasting our, our programming far and wide. And that is one residually good effect of the COVID era for us. But I think even before that, we we realized that in order to to make our programming more relevant, we really needed to draw in those audiences. And we started actually in the digital realm, uh, not only uh, with the, some of the, the touchscreen stuff on site, but really more with our Women in the American Story curriculum, which is a free online curriculum um, essentially K through 12, but I think our sweet spot is somewhere in the middle school and beyond, in which we enable teachers to, to not just in March at Women's History Month, but <laughs> always have some piece, uh, some angle onto the past, uh, the whole narrative, the whole sweep, so, scope and sequence of history 
where women did have an impact. And often in the history books, they're just not there or they are a small percentage of the time. So this is our, our very successful foray into placing women's history at, in, in the hands of, of the teachers and the students that are all over the country and in, all over the world, uh, for that matter. So we've been extremely fortunate to have already had that underway even before COVID. And um, certainly during COVID, this was a, a boon to at-home teaching and learning. So this is wonderful. It's digital. Well, and even before that, um, you know, from the get-go, we were doing the MOOC, right. the massive online open course in collaboration with Columbia, wasn't it? Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then not too long after we opened our first exhibition, we started our uh, Women at the Center blog. So really, even from the very beginning, like long before COVID was a thing anybody had even heard of, we were oriented towards providing content even for people who couldn't physically make it to the museum. That's right. But I think that we were, again, if I, just to hammer home the COVID thing one more time, it was already in place. So therefore, we had a little bit of a leg up. And uh, all of a sudden, with people at home and their compu- on their computers, our content became all the more important and relevant to um, to the people who were, you know, sequestered away in their, mm-hmm. you know, in the privacy of their own homes. Uh, our blog series was just underway at that point, Women at the Center, and it's only, you know, we've only been able to improve it since then because we think of the different inroads that we have. It's not just one-off essays or uh, reflections on, um, on history and women's uh, importance to it, but we package the, a series in a different way, sort of like an online magazine almost as opposed to a blog series. But uh, we've had some, you know, just wonderful feedback from from all of these different um, digital components of our programming. I wanted to go back just a little bit. I'm still so interested in this sense that public history is really, it ebbs and flows with the calendar. And I was thinking how you know, also your comment about how the sausage gets made. And, you know, there are some really wonderful behind the scenes, just lucky coincidences that happen, you know, and it doesn't necessarily get tied into the digital world, but it can help. And so, you know, I was thinking, for example, of how we recently had the Catherine Graham exhibit, which was very much tied to the 50th anniversary of the publication of the Pentagon Papers. Mm -hmm. Well, who should walk in? But the niece of one of the journalists who was mentioned in that show, and not even mentioned at length, like I think there were two little places in the exhibition text that mentioned this particular journalist, Elsie Carper, which, you know, is very gratifying to the people who write the exhibition text because it means (laughs) that somebody actually read it, which is not always the case. But then she got in touch afterwards, and now her aunt's archive is part of our collections. And so, you know, we start with this one exhibition that's tied to the calendar, but then we are able to enrich our physical holdings. And yet, you know, it's the problem that all archives have, especially in a digital age, the question of access. And so I wonder, Valerie, if you wanted to talk a little bit more about the ways that Women's history, the Center for Women's History is making women's history more accessible to people, not only the people who come into New York Historical, but the people who can't make it in for whatever reason. You know, as a public historian who works in a museum, I find access is, is key and mm-hmm. accessibility, not only in terms of, you know, physical location, but in terms of intellectual enthusiasm for a topic and and buy-in um, how do we how do we excite audiences that aren't necessarily excited about history um, and I think that a public historian's uh, task is to is to show how vital the past is to understanding the present I mean that sounds a little bit hokey but it's true <laughs> and and it's hard uh, I, I often said to my, my students when I when I teach from time to time that it's much easier to write a you know 10,000 word essay or chapter or 
dissertation than it is to write a 100-word label mm -hmm. because what you try to do is, is encapsulate all of the important points without using necessarily fancy words, but you're not dumbing down complex content. But that really doesn't speak to what you asked me, Jean, but I think that uh, accessibility, yes, is very important. And I have to say that I've been very impressed with the uh, education uh, program here at New York Historical that has taken the idea of women's history and women in the American story and, and run with it. You know, we're in all 50 states and parts of Canada now, and this is just a very exciting thing. We're, we're reaching hundreds of thousands, um, if not soon to be millions of students and people. And, and I think that that's where we begin by having citizens, students, people see the importance of, of women's history and all of history and, and to look at history in a, in a new and different way. But you ask about the digital realm as well. That kind of access is, is equally important as now as the, the uh, uh, director of uh, the Patricia D. Klingenstein Library here at New York Historical, I see the, the, the myriad ways that the digital realm is, is certainly the wave of the future with research and with collecting. We are collecting things that are, quote, quote born digital, which is a very complex and, um, you know, new frontier for uh, library collecting. But also to just have it accessible online where anyone can, you don't have to, like, walk in, you don't have to be in New York City even, you don't have to be on anywhere but on your on your computer, and you can even be on a computer in a library and, and access materials. So this is important, but I think it begins with some kind of realization or enthusiasm or intellectual embrace of, of how women's history is so vital to understanding the past. I love what you're saying here, um, and I think so much of what you both have talked about about your experiences speaks to the real hunger that exists for more of this kind of history. I mean, we've already heard two stories of women seeing the potential of this space and giving their collections because of their excitement. And then when you think about literally hundreds of thousands of people using the resources that you all are putting out, I think it's fabulous. And I think it also speaks to the just exciting nature of what you're doing in in the center. And so I was wondering if you, Valerie, might be able to share just some like triumphs that you personally have experienced or happy moments. Like when you look back at what you've done here and think about some of the exciting things, like I wonder if you could share that with our audience. I mean, every day is a triumphal day. <laughs> there, I, every day is Women's History Month. That's right. Every, every, yeah, every day is Women's History Month, indeed. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, a lot of the time, I, I, some young students or, or young historians will come to me and ask, how, what do I need to do to get a job like yours? And uh, as a, a historian with a PhD, and, you know, I studied in, in the academy, as did everyone else. I did my time in the academy. This is... A dream come true in a way to be able to do something so exciting with content that I love mm -hmm. and have studied and find ways to make other people love it as well. <laughs> uh, to me, history is 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 vital. It's exciting. It's 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 Im beyond important. It, it is it is of paramount importance to um, understanding who we are and where we're going. So in a way, just the, the opportunity to do that in ways that are uh, accessible and meaningful to the general public is, is just wonderful. Mm. In a way, it's funny. I was at a conference, a history conference, uh, maybe five, six years ago, uh, at which I was on one of these panels about, you know, how do you do history in the public realm? Or, mm -hmm. you know, how do you take your PhD and do not work in the academy? Someone got up, a European scholar, and said to me as in the Q&A portion, how dare you take a fellowship away from another, you know, candidate for a PhD candidate when you had no intention of working in the academy? Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I think there was an audible sigh in the room uh, or a 
grunt like that, but also, <laughs> but that was a long enough time ago that it still was pretty subversive mm. to think about getting a PhD and not working in the academy. But my very um, quick response, which turns out was very true, was, okay, well, you know, a lot of the people who come to, to a history museum like ours have maybe eighth or to 12th grade um, history. They might be interested in history. Some of them are, of course, maybe history majors in college. But for the most part, we're, we're not necessarily assuming that everyone has the same level of knowledge. So when you think about these 100-word labels that, are, that, are, uh, that encapsulate 10,000-word ideas and the hundreds of thousands of people who have read those mm-hmm. labels... I feel as though I am doing a service. Maybe, I don't know, 50 people read my dissertation, but hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of people have read this interpretation that, that, that I make, that I have these, these angles uh, into the past, these windows onto the past that I uh, have been able to create as a public historian in a museum setting, that that in a, a way is a, a mini triumph. And I said, you know, uh, this is just as important as what I could have done in the academy, probably more so. So that that in a like in a larger sense is perhaps like one of the things that keeps me going. <laughs> and judging from the number of interview requests you get <laughs> from the newspapers and CBS and all of the other places that want to interview you, other people agree um, that there is a a need and a hunger for this type type of content, and that. You know, the Center for Women's History is well-placed to fill that need. I wanted to ask as well, like, if you could go back in time to the beginning of the Center for Women's History, are there things that you might have done differently? I know what I would have done differently, but I was wondering if you had any (laughs) thoughts as well. You know, I was thinking of women's voices. I wish we could make that more widely available. I know why we can't, but... Um, Women's Voices uh, is a series of beautiful big touchscreens with, gosh, I can't even remember now. It's been so long, but well in excess of 100 women pictured there. And you can tap each screen and up will pop um, photographs of them, quotes that they've written down, um, audio clips of them speaking, video clips if those exist. Um, So we've got dancers and politicians and abolitionists and just all these different sorts of women. And that is not something that we can make more widely accessible. That's something that can only be accessed by coming here to the museum and standing in the fourth floor hallway and poking away. You know, I wish we could have made that a little more accessible, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts. Well, I mean, on the topic of women's voices, and as you were it's so easy to come to our fourth floor and start playing with this this interactive, and it looks pretty simple. But in fact, just even coming to you know to the table to develop not only the historical content and the way it's packaged, but the design. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, uh, David Small of um, Cambridge, Mass, MIT, uh, was quite at the forefront of museum touchscreen type technology. And I'd worked with him before when we did our 2011 uh, renovation um, in the the main spaces of, of New York Historical. And I think the problem was we knew, like in a perfect world, yeah, we would have had all of that stuff online. We would have continued to grow the, the collection of women and women's voices. We also wanted a like a sort of a tweet component so that in real time people could be reacting to uh, the content. And all of that, the idea was more advanced than the technology that mm-hmm. could sustain it. And so we were a little bit ahead of our time in that regard, but we could only do what the technology could allow us to do. But yes, I agree that would have been nice to put out there. And now I think there are there are certainly other, purveyors of that kind of content that 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 have a lock on the tech and that's good. I mean that's fine. We we did our part in in, you know, eight years ago or whenever it was, seven years ago. What would we have done differently? I it, it's funny because there there was something very organic about the way we approached this. And I think that we'd seen some false starts with women's history, certainly with the uh, the museum or the initiative in in DC that is still, you know, slow to gain traction, although I think we might have helped 
in that mm -hmm. regard because we saw the viability and the, the excitement around this topic. But one thing that we did do was we had a very large tent for, for women's history, and I think this was great. The fact that we, though we began with a group, a scholarly board, we assembled a scholarly board chaired by Alice Kessler Harris, who was in many ways the doyen of women's <laughs> history, emerita um, uh, professor at Columbia. Once she understood what we were trying to do, like embraced it wholeheartedly and brought to the table many other practitioners of women's history who were truly to you know to people in grad school or are, are, are the superstars these mm -hmm. are the rock stars of of the field uh, not just women's history but history in a larger sense so to have not only their buy-in but their and their ideas but to have them help us along the way was extremely valuable a lot of the time, the historians who work in the academy are a little bit naive about what we can and cannot do in in, um, in a museum setting. But all of these scholars really, really came around to understanding what we were doing and, and gave us wholehearted support. So that was great. But I, I guess that we were a little bit reactive also. We did what we needed to do. Um, and what we had the funds to do. So I would say that were we just given a blank slate and knew where we would wind up today, five, eight years on, versus where we were when we began, I'm not really sure if I would do anything differently. <laughs> I thought we were pretty damn good. Uh, the massive open online course was also a way. Again, when we talk, go back, hearkening back to the digital realm, how do you do something um, that has these grand aspirations before the bricks and mortar are even set. And the digital realm really did help us a lot. So this massive open online course, which Alice Kessler-Harris did uh, spearhead um, in connection, in conjunction, collaboration with, with Columbia, was wonderful. It legitimized what we did. And actually, an aside, when, you know, Jean mentioned that the, the, the press was very interested and excited about this venture, perhaps a little skeptical, but, <laughs> but uh, I fielded one press interview in which, you know, the, the journalist said, well, gosh, I mean, women's history. I mean, I realized that New York Historical Society had a women's history collection, which on the face of it is true, but my very um, quick response was, we have been around since 1804. We've been collecting since 1804. Why would you think that women wouldn't be part of that collection? It just has not. The collections of the Historical Society, which by many accounts, most accounts, we like to say is a collection of collections, they, they weren't categorized as women's history, but it's hiding in plain sight. I know it's there. And I didn't really know it one way or the other, but but I just took an educated guess, and sure enough, it is true. There is so much that's there, which can be mined in in new ways, and and I think that we just putting the idea out there uh, again, women in the American story, the uh, the online curriculum does do this quite well. Is also a very valuable way of of looking at at collections that you think have been mined to death already, but in fact, you're not looking quite in the right way at this. So I, I think, you know, in many ways, what we've done in, in a reactive way, in many ways, that, that comment was reactive. It's like, ooh, ooh, what am I going to say, say to this person? It was true. And so I think that we've just been unbelievably fortunate, but we've had such a, a wonderful um, group of scholars and um, supporters and certainly team members that um, that have really helped us advance this aspirational goal of making women's history part of all of history. So speaking of making women's history part of all history, of, of mining these incredible collections that you all have at the New York Historical Society, I was wondering if you could tell us, is there you know programming coming up that you're particularly excited about? What are you looking forward to over the next months, even years? I mean, I think that there's always a challenge 
in New York and in the museum setting in general to for relevance and for attention of the of our um, audiences, but also some of these ex- exhibitions can be extremely costly mm-hmm. to put on. I think we've been wonderfully adept at staging at least two exhibitions per year in our jo- uh, Joyce B. Cowan Women's History Gallery, and they've all like spoken to the the wonderful versatility of this gallery. It, it can be a, a blank box. It can be an immersive space. We uh, sort of evoked uh, Dolly Madison's White House uh, in the first um, exhibition we ever did there, and people were astonished that that exhibition came down a few months later. And like, wow, we thought this was going to be here forever because it really did look quite permanent. But this speaks to not only a very talented team of, of curators, but also of exhibition designers and others that, that make um, make the magic. Um, but it's costly. So I think that what we've tried to do uh, going forward is find a way to minimize the, uh, the sort of the, the total breakdown of of just very solid looking exhibition infrastructure mm-hmm. and um, and do something new that would keep uh, some of the infrastructure in place but switch out the the content of an exhibition. I'm sounding cryptic because and I don't intend to but the next show I'm just sort of teeing up our next show our next sort of permanent semi-permanent show which will go up probably in about a year or less maybe. And Jean Gutierrez here is is really taking the lead on this, so I'll have her talk about it in a, in a bit. But teeing it up, not too long ago, this trope or, or this thematic approach to objects and material culture, uh, history of the world in 100 objects. And we did a history of the Civil War in 50 objects. Um, my colleague at the New York Times, Sam Roberts, did history of New York City in 101 objects. Okay, We were involved in, in a lot of those projects. Uh, certainly the Civil War project with Harold Hulser, you know, originated right here. And, and I, you know, we helped him edit the book and flesh out what the content of that book would be. And I thought that if we took much of what we learned with the um, with the Max Conference, for example, finding a, a larger theme that isn't necessarily um, pegged as women's history and and sort of flesh out that theme using objects would be sort of a beneficial way of of, of adapting a uh, an exhibition infrastructure like you know casework and such. And we'll start with one theme, and then after. I don't know, eight months or a year, switch it out with another totally different theme as though it's a different show altogether, but essentially, you know, sort of being able to repurpose some of this mm-hmm. this um, exhibition uh, detailing and uh, 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 casework that is very expensive to put together. In any case, maybe Jean would like to talk about, about our first um, foray into that sort of brave new world. Sure. I'm happy to. Um, and I think also some of the themes that we'll touch on in this upcoming exhibition will also speak to some of our larger priorities, including um, an increased focus not only on women's history, but on gender history um, and the work of gender performance um, and how gender intersects with race and class and immigration status and all sorts of other sort of categorizations to impact people's lives. Um, so what we've done with this upcoming exhibition is taken the idea of women's work and abstracted it um, as much as possible. So we're not saying here is an object to represent women lawyers and here is an object to represent nurses. Um, what we're doing is saying why is it easier for women to enter this field and not that field? You know, we're having some objects installed that would be exactly what you might expect from a women's history show. You know, people are going to walk into the exhibition and see a cradle, you know, ho-hum, so so expected. But behind that cradle will be a painting from our collection showing a black woman caring for a white infant. And so we're going to confront people with the reality of what's considered women's work, who does what work, who gets paid. Um, I am especially excited about including a police nightstick in the exhibition and talking about 
um, sort of legally gray areas of women's endeavors. You know, not only sex work, but during prohibition, women who sold alcohol, um, women who provided contraceptives and birth control knowledge in a time when such products and such knowledge were illegal. So we're really trying to blow open this idea of what is women's work and get people to really think about that category. Is it even a category? Can it be unbraided from work generally? And we're arguing that it can't. So we want to take all people's expectations and just turn them right upside down. I think that really speaks to what you both have been talking about, which is the way that women's history is history and that you can't learn history or you really shouldn't learn history without learning women's history right alongside it. So with that being said, I just wanted to give you, Valerie, the opportunity to leave our audience with anything you'd you know like them to take away from our conversation today. If there's anything we haven't touched on or anything that you want to really make sure they remember as they, you know, press pause at the end of this podcast. You're putting me on the spot. When I come to work, like, for example, just just a moment ago when I walked in the door of Central Park West and saw what looked like hundreds of uh, teenage school kids wandering around. They had clipboards. They had... They were they were looking at our exhibitions and just looking very deeply at some of these labels that we, we have. It is so gratifying to feel as though we're making some kind of impact with, with our audiences, uh, particularly our young audiences. And I think that I'd like uh, our radio audience to know how exciting history is. And you don't have to necessarily come to the New York Historical Society on Central Park West in New York, but it would be nice if you did. <laughs> you can visit us online as well. But I think that there are so many different ways of learning about the past. And um, and I think that valuing and understanding the dynamism of the past through whatever source you, you receive it, I'd like to think we're making that kind of impact, um, you know, in person, online, um, in our curricula, in our public programming and in our massive open online course. And I hope that you'll find one of those ways to um, to react to the past. And I hope we can be there along that journey with you. Valerie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I know you're super busy and we really appreciate it. So thank you again for speaking with us this morning. Absolute pleasure. Thank you.